Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, readers and writers, welcome to this episode number 352 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, uh, Beyond 300. I'm here with co-host Sarah Archer and Hannah LaRue and also little Gwen LaRue. Mm-hmm. She'll pop in maybe. She will. <laughs> and she will. And we've got a great lineup for you today. Uh, yeah, we sure do. We're going to start with an author feature with English professor and author David Wright Faladay and his book, Black Cloud Rising, the story of an African brigade of former slaves who fought for the Union along the coast of Virginia and North Carolina during the fall of 1863. National Book Award winner Charles Frazier describes the book as richly detailed, a grippingly told story that breathes life into a revolutionary moment when the U.S. moved a vital step forward toward achieving the ideals we've always proclaimed. Gwen's trying to come in right now and uh, <laughs> share what the uh, two-minute tip from Paul Reale is today. <laughs> Tap in the mic. She's a natural. Uh, Paul shares an awesome two-minute tip today uh, called Becoming a Better Writer. Right, Gwen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> Gwen's going to become a better writer. All right. So uh, we also have uh, a blogger, Pernell Hughes, author of 10 years. She's got a blog post uh, titled Random Nuggets for Writerly Wranglings. <laughs> Great title. Such a good title. And then we're going to finish up today with our reading recommendations, book pitches, community and listener engagement, and what's coming in the next episode. Yeah, but first, what's up with the podcast book? This month, we're celebrating the release of book six in the Write Quote series titled Writing Community, Revision, and Editors. Yeah, super excited about this one. There's a lot of great material in there, um, inspirational and practical quotes that we've pulled from over 500 podcast interviews with hardworking, award-winning, and New York Times bestselling authors in more than 33 U.S. states and five countries. Yeah, and this book reveals how writers really feel about writing community, revision, and editors. Um, to learn more, just head over to our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, and click on the podcast books tab in the menu bar. Uh, you can order this book online and wherever print books are sold. Also, don't forget that the first book in the Write Quote series, which is called The Writing Life, can be downloaded for free online. That's our gift to you, to the writing universe. So look for that link in the podcast books page of our website. Yeah, and you can also pre-order the upcoming books in the series now. Um, Gosh, we're uh, almost uh, out of books, so we only got seven and eight left. Uh, Book seven comes out September 1st. It's The Emotional Writing Journey, Uh, The Ups and Downs of Being a Writer and uh, Perseverance and Everything That Goes With It. Uh, book eight, publishing and book marketing. Uh, it's an October one release. Uh, a lot of good content in there about the publishing world and how to get your book out there. Uh, and of course, we've got books uh, one through six. Uh, so check those out as well. If you want to receive all eight of the books for free, the eBooks, then you can join our street team. Um, just go to the contact tab on the menu bar at charlottereaderspodcast.com, or you can also go to the podcast books page of the website, and there's a link there to join. All you have to do is um, just agree to leave your short, honest reviews online about the books, just a few words about how you felt about them, and you will get all eight eBooks for free. These aren't heavy reads, but they're full of weighty tips and reflections. Yeah, and don't forget that if you become a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, for as little as $5 a month, we'll give you all the books for free ahead of their release. Um, That's in addition to the 150 exclusive interviews that you'll be able to access on our channel on the craft and business of writing. All right. uh, So, yeah, check those books out. Uh, When you do, you're helping the podcast, and uh, you're also getting uh, insight into what uh, all these writers think about uh, this thing called writing. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, here we are in Act uh, One, uh, the interview portion of the show. We've got uh, David Wright Falalde. He is the author of Black Cloud Rising. Sarah, tell us a little bit about David. 
Uh, sure. David is a professor of English at the University of Illinois and was the uh, 2021 to 22 Mary Ellen Von Der Hayden Fellow of the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. He's also the co-author of the young adult novel Away Running and the nonfiction book Fire on the Beach, Recovering the Lost Story of Richard Etheridge and the Pea Island Lifesavers. That one was a New Yorker notable selection and a St. Louis Dispatch Best Book of 2001. He's also the recipient of a Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Award. He's written for the New Yorker, The Village Voice, The Southern Review, Newsday, and more. Yeah, and I really enjoyed uh, this interview uh, with David. Uh, the book Away Running, which you talk about in the interview, is about him playing American football in France. So that'll be uh, interesting to hear about yeah, as well. Cool. Uh, the book is interesting. Uh, this was uh, something I knew very little about. Uh, it involves um, this time period, 1863. Uh, Union forces have, have sort of grabbed control of the Tidewater, Virginia area, and they've got a toehold there in eastern North Carolina, including along the Outer Banks, which I didn't know was much a part of the uh, fighting in the Civil War. And uh, thousands of freed slaves and runaways have flooded the Union lines, and they sort of form this uh, African brigade, and then they take the august step of arming them, and they go through the Outer Banks area, freeing other enslaved people. It's a little-known episode in uh the history is called Black Cloud Rising. It's a interesting account, uh, very uh, interesting characters, and I had a good time talking with David about it. And Hannah, it also got some praise, didn't it? It sure did. Um, Dwight Garner for the New York Times says that the nature of the American experience is ex implicitly questioned but not burned to the ground. This is a classic war story told simply and well. It's meaning not forced but allowed to bubble up. That sound good. All right. All right. Well, let's let the interview bubble up right now. David, uh, welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, it's great to talk to you, Landis. Yeah, and uh, congratulations on the book, Black Cloud Rising. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed the story. It was interesting. I, it wasn't, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I've been to the Outer Banks. Uh, of course, when I've been out there, it's been for pleasure and sitting on the beach or fishing or something. And I've never thought about the Outer Banks being, you know, having some role necessarily in the Civil War between the states, whatever you want to call it, because it's so remote. And uh, so um, I'm just curious, um, how did you find out about this story? You know, it, it goes back to uh, grad school, actually. Um, my first year of grad school, I'd lived abroad uh, and I came back and I was at VCU in Richmond and uh, another first year student, I was in a, the MFA program in fiction writing and he was a poet and he had spent time in the Outer Banks and having grown up uh, grown up in proximity of there and lived out there, he knew the culture of the life-saving service. So the, the origin this, origins of uh, Black Cloud Rising are in the uh, story of the life-saving service, mm. oddly. Yeah, and I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later because you got a, one of your earlier books is on, on that part of the history of that area. But uh, well, let's give our listeners a little bit of a primer on African Brigade and the landscape where the story takes place. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, this uh, group that uh, came together and uh, fought uh, in the war sometime around 1863. Yeah, well, so the Union, uh, as the Civil War breaks out, the Union, one of their first sort of uh, places where they get a, a landhold um, is in Tidewater, Virginia, and along the Outer Banks. And so uh, there was actually a, a semi-famous uh, battle called the Chickamacomico Races, where they're going back and forth, racing up the Outer Banks, the Union Army and the Confederate forces. Um, they end up overrunning Roanoke Island, uh, which is where Manio is today. Um, and in so doing, then you have this Union foothold. There's a Union foothold in Tidewater, Virginia, Norfolk, Portsmouth, and then this Union foothold there in the Outer Banks. And at the outbreak of the Civil War, both there in Virginia and then further south in Louisiana, the Union Army begins to realize that if, if they use, you know, slaves immediately flee into Union lines. And the Army realizes if they use slave labor, that at, on the one hand, they're getting uh, uh, labor for their own forces, but they're beginning to cripple the Confederacy. And from that, then they start talking about arming these these you know slaves who are fle fleeing into the lines. And that's how the the African Brigade comes about, essentially. Yeah, and uh, interesting title, uh, "Black Cloud Rising." Uh, there's a lot packed into that uh, title. What do those words evoke in your mind as you think about this story? You know. Uh, 
I stumbled on it. The The book has had a lot of titles, mm-hmm. and uh, my editor uh, just didn't like any of them, and rightly. <laughs> well, that, that's typical when <laughs> trying to name a book, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's also really not my strength. Yeah. But he had suggested that I go back and maybe look at some songs, you know, in the, in the narrative. Um, at, at various points, I have the troopers singing. And so he was, nothing was coming out of those particular songs that I was using in the book, but he was suggesting maybe I go back. And I was just Googling uh, uh, sort of Civil War songs. And there was a, a, a song that was written by a Union soldier, a white Union soldier from the North, but who, but who had seen black troops. The thing that was interesting to me about it was that it's written in dialect. Mm. So it, it sort of, he clearly, you know, he was an abolitionist. He clearly had this fervor for these black troops that he was seeing. It was interesting to him, but he could only kind of imagine them through the sort of lens of minstrelsy, how sort of black people were represented broadly. So I quote that as an epigraph. And one of the lines when he's talking about these black troops, uh, you know, sort of marching back on the South, he, ta- he refers to them as a black cloud rising. Mm. And so I thought that interesting mix of things, this, you know, pro-black soldier song written in dialect, you know, with this awesome line, and it's it sort of worked, so. Well, they were, they were going through um, the landscape there, uh, freeing slaves, and uh, they were, I suppose if you were a white person who owned slaves and you saw this group of a thousand black men marching toward you, it would feel a little bit like a, a black cloud yeah. rising, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And especially given that, so that, and especially given that with this particular unit, uh, the Second North Carolina uh, uh, volunteer corps, I think is what they were official title was. They become the 36th United States color troop. Most of those men are from that region. Mm. Most of them are, are, are former slaves who had fled from the re- uh, from that very, uh, uh, part of the world, Northeast North Carolina and the outer banks. And so as they're coming back, they're, they're not just freeing other slaves, they're freeing family, they're freeing friends. And that struck me as, uh, uh, significant as resident too. Yeah, and they're all, essentially, you you approach this a lot, different character types here. Um, And, for example, you have those who were formerly enslaved who are now looking to fight uh, to help free others. And then you have some uh, people in this narrative that uh, pretty much like, uh, well, I've I've served my time and uh, I don't want to get involved in uh, fighting this war between white men and uh, and I guess also you put a white general in charge who was a bit uh, crazy. And I'm just wondering how much uh, you had to pull, obviously, from the facts, but it's kind of narrative nonfiction. So where does where's the twain meet in terms of truth and fiction here? You know, I got really, really lucky, which is to say the bones of the story are are based in, in, in history, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in sort of the history. Edward Wilde. Uh, obviously, I'm taking the, these 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 characters. Mm-hmm. I'm taking these these actual historical figures, right. and I'm fictionalizing right. them. But with somebody like Wilde, who is the general who's in charge, because of his stature, because who he was, uh, he was a uh, this sort of fervent abolitionist from uh, Brookline, Massachusetts. There's a lot of history there on him, and so again, I'm dramatizing it. I'm giving my interpretation of it. But as far as I can tell, I mean, I. This is who that man was uh, before the war. He goes off and he, uh, you know, he's basically a mercenary. He's a he's a trained medical doctor, but he goes off and he fights in the Crimean War. Um, he's involved with Garibaldi as Garibaldi's, you know, sort of fighting in what would become Italy. He has this a little bit of a, he's the most aptly named general ever, you know, um, uh, Colonel Draper, actual historical figure. And uh, was able to read uh, a lot of his letters and things like that. And so I, I had a sense of who I thought they were. All of the characters, um, I want to, before I state this, yeah, all of the characters I've taken from history, except for Revere, who I invented whole cloth, mm-hmm. because I wanted to take enough liberties with that character. I felt like I needed a character to, to, to sort of be the mirror image of my main character, mm-hmm. that I didn't want to sort of you know, take a name from the roster and sort of ascribe to him that much of a personality. But the other characters, you know, again, I'm, I'm fictionalizing them. I'm trying to interpret who I think they were, but I'm taking it from the historical record. Yeah, and I suppose uh, I said narrative nonfiction. I, I was thinking so much about it's really more historical fiction. And this this character, Revere, yeah. Revere is a, he, he's an antagonist, which helps make your protagonist a little more 
interesting as well. Um, and uh, so let's talk about your protagonist. Tell, tell our listeners about him. So Richard Etheridge, uh, who's at the center of it, again, I, I stumble on Richard Etheridge in my first year of graduate school. He's the keeper in later life. My first book, uh, which was nonfiction, was about the Pee Island Life Saving Station out there. And the Pee Island Life Saving Station in the age of sale was the only uh, all-black uh, life-saving station in the history of the life-saving service. And the life-saving service is the forerunner of the Coast Guard. So there were, you know, everything travels by water, by and large, in the 19th century. Uh, it's before a lot of steam-powered ships. It's before radar and all that. And the way that the government tried to safeguard shipping was through the life-saving service. There were about 200 stations, one run and staffed by black people. Richard Etheridge was the first keeper. So I write my first book about him, and in writing about him, I come upon this backstory that he had served in the Civil War. And in so doing, I then come upon this little slice of it. He had an, actually a very um, active, his whole unit had a very active participation in the war, but there was this little sliver of history, this three-week uh, uh, foray that they did that I write about in the novel that just had not been written about a lot. And it was just so rich. Again, former slaves returning where they had been enslaved. So Richard Etheridge is the protagonist and the person through who I tell the story. But it's interesting, to me at least this was interesting, it's a Civil War novel, clearly, mm -hmm. because it's set during the Civil mm -hmm. War and this is what's happening. But for me, the thing that drew me to it was the piece I couldn't get at in Fire on the Beach, the first book, the nonfiction book, which is to say it's very likely that Richard Etheridge was his master's, his former master's son. Mm -hmm. And that piece of it, the family piece of it, you know, the Civil War story is brother against brother, but it's also imagined as sort of white northern brother against white southern brother. But here we have brother against brother, you know, former slave and former owner um, and, you know, his former owner's white children. And so I wanted to, it just seemed like a really rich way to get at the, fam the story of sort of uh, slavery and family and, you know, so-called miscegenation, uh, all that. All that. Yeah, and that's that's really a, a good setup for a question I had for you, which relates to the internal struggles of uh, of your main character here. He is a former slave who's trying to come to grips with being the son of his master, um, kind of wanting, like any son, I think, the appreciation, maybe the pride of their father, but knowing that how he was born uh, and how his mother was treated was wrong, and uh, that sets up a real conflict for him throughout this narrative. Right, exactly. To me, that is the, uh, the crucial point of conflict in the narrative. So for him, uh, making his father proud is sort of being his best self, but necessarily being his best self goes against his father's interests. Mm -hmm. His father owns him. His mother is keenly aware of that. He's keenly aware of it, but he can't quite escape the grip of, uh, uh, of wanting to, in the eyes of his father, to represent even the family name. You know, and so his his, you know, white sibling uh, with whom he grows up very, you know, like so many children do. It's in, it was interesting to me, the question, you know, with his white siblings who also are his owners. But when they're two and three and four and five years old, what's the point where you start understanding yourself to be owned by this person who you, you know, shared your mother, you know, shared your mother's breast with? Because oftentimes it was slaves who breastfed the children, you know, white and black. Uh, and so I was just interested in that part of it. I was interested in in family. I mean, I guess that's the, the way to reduce it to. I was just interested in slave family. Yeah, because you got a scene early in the book uh, where um, he's playing with his, uh, his biological brother, who happens to be white, uh, who later gets sort of a lesson from his father about, you know, now it's time to start treating Richard uh, Dick a little bit differently, you know, because uh, you got to step up and... Be, I guess be the owner now in yeah, his family, right. and so that creates that kind of dynamic. And I'm I'm just wondering, um, how do you get into the heads of these characters? You know, in that time period, well enough to share kind of what it must have been like for them, um, what they must have been experiencing internally, uh, the kind of things that you reveal in this book. Uh, does anything come from your own background and experience? Uh, do you have to study that? How do you sort of get around that? Because they don't. That's not always in the in the historical records. Yeah, no, it's really not in the historical record, which again was part of what intrigued me. Um, so a couple of, th a, a sort of two-pronged answer. The first and the more important of the two 
Um, so I also teach. I teach at the University of Illinois. And I teach a course called uh, Slavery and Identity. Uh, I've been teaching it before uh, writing Black Cloud Rising. And part in, in, in studying the history of slavery, part of what you end up looking at is the representations of race. And specifically of both black and white, but the representation, representation of, of slaves, of black people, of enslaved people. And the way that it is, you know, through minstrelsy and through plantation sort of era literature where you have these Sambo figures and, you know, it, it's always these sort of grotesque stereotypes, but that people in that era are sort of taking at face value, you know, the white, larger white mainstream readership, I mean. But the slaves know they're not a Sambo. You know, if you're if you're, a, you know, a slave who's working from sunup to sundown and, you know, just trying to make it in this world where you're in bondage and you have a family, if you can, you're trying to protect your family as best you can. Um, you know, you are not that Sambo figure as you are represented to be. You see, you know, a minstrel show, which, you know. Is something you might not be able to read, so you're not reading plantation era literature, although you understand how you're seen. You see a mistral, so you see this mockery of of who you are, of your music. And I think you you start asking questions about what it is that those people actually see when they look at you. Mm. You know, I mean Invisible Man is about that in the nineteen fifties, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so for me it's the same question. What are people seeing? And the flip side of that is I feel like it takes, if you're the, the, the white sibling in that dynamic, mm -hmm. you know, the white character's name is Patrick. So Richard and Patrick grow up together. They, you know, they fish together. They, you know, Patrick, they work together to a certain extent, even if Patrick in his place is overseeing Richard. At what point, like, what is the act of will that it takes for that white person to look at somebody he's known his whole life and see such a grotesque misrepresentation mm -hmm. that he imagines him that is that he imagines him as uh, a constitutionally lesser. Yeah. I was interested in that question. The John B. Etheridge, the father, when he looks at the as his two children, both of whom are capable, how does he see the black child as constitutionally lesser? So I wanted to explore that. Yeah. You know, that sort of act of will that it takes. Yeah, and the other piece of it, sorry to cut you off, but the other piece of it very briefly, uh, and it came up when the excerpt came up in the New Yorker, because I had not even realized this, but in my own backstory, I have sort of a complicated paternity, and the editor, as we were doing this interview after they published the story, she made, she made reference to that, and in that moment, I realized, oh, daddy issues, I'm writing about my own daddy issues here, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that is interesting, and, and I won't reveal uh, anything other than the fact that that... Uh, storyline between the two brothers comes out later because Patrick, the, the white son, ends up sneaking off to fight for the, what they call the bushwhackers, and uh, they kind of come in contact, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, so uh, one thing that was interesting to me, this character sort of um, came to realize at some point as they're marching that, um, and it's probably through one of the other characters, as I recall, that uh, you know the way that they are having to behave in the army toward their superiors is not much different than the way they had to behave as slaves toward their masters. And I'm wondering what that says about the army <laughs> or, or, or how this idea occurred to you and are there any lessons embedded here? <laughs> well, you know, especially in that era, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the corporal punishment for soldiers who misbehaved mm -hmm. was literally that. Yeah. Soldiers would be flogged and things like that. Yeah. We see an evidence of that in glory. I mean, it's Denzel Washington. Right. But white soldiers could be flogged too. You know, they would uh, buck mm -hmm. and gag soldiers in the army broadly. Mm -hmm. But if you're a slave and that's how you were tr treated for misbehaving badly, it struck me as, yeah, what does that look like? Right. You know, how, how does this feel different? But the other piece of it, I think, too, because this was equally important for me. So... You know, we're, we're, we're talking as, as writers here, you were talking about how uh, Revere and Richard, Revere as the antagonist, allows me to sort of mm -hmm. make Richard come off the page. And it's the same thing with Draper and Patrick. So mm -hmm. Draper, who's the white colonel, who has, he's an abolitionist. He has the best intentions. He leaves his position leading white troops to lead black troops. He has the best intentions. Mm -hmm. But he has never, you know, he comes from a part of the world where he has maybe never encountered black people before he does then. So as a rigid military man, you know, he wants to make them into good soldiers. But the method that he has, he doesn't realize, resembles what they had lived just as slaves. Mm -hmm. And so that parallel, the parallel arc of Draper with the parallel arc of, of Patrick allows me to show, you know, Richard's relationship to the colonel and Richard's relationship to his brother allows me to sort of, I think, I hope, 
bring those characters and their conflict off the page a little bit more. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, well, this is probably a good time, um, David, for you to do a little reading for us. I've got more questions, but uh, you can set it up. Tell us where you are in the book and, and have at it. Okay. I thought I'd read just from the beginning. Uh, it opens up with sort of Richard remembering his youth, but it's as the African Brigade has been formed and there's this struggle about whether to arm them or not within the Union Army. And General Wilde, uh, who is, again, so aptly named, finally procures some weapons and he takes them on a sort of trial run for this three-week foray. And they're going to go and arrest um, a, a plantation owner nearby their fort who has a reputation of, of being particularly uh, violent with his slaves, but he's also reputed to be a guerrilla. So they've arrived at the plantation. This is Richard speaking. I was directing some men loading a handcart with farm tools when I overheard the runaway Cuffy saying to the general, all slavers buck they slaves. His head was bowed, but his voice clear and strong. But this one, he in the habit of strip, stripping him head to heels, gals as likely as men's, whatever the age and for the least offense, and he lay it on sportly. The general's expression did not change, but something was moving underneath. I know of at least one that ain't survived it, said Cuffy. And I noted then what a forehand I had failed to see, a whipping post, well used, standing erect between the dwelling house and the barn. Or, what was more likely, my eyes had until then dodged seeing it. I had never suffered the lash, but what slave did not know it? General Wilde, come abreast of Clapson, still disdainful of dismounting, leaned low from his saddle. Even the women, said he to the Confederate, even the women? Revere yanked Clapson to his feet, unbidden by the general, but the order clear. The secesh pulled like a colt then, knowing certain what was next. Revere, with a fistful of hair and a fistful of cloth, dragged him toward that upright timber. Shackles hung from its foretop point, and while two troopers wrestled the man's lurching and writhing, Revere hitched him on by the wrists. The yard was dead still, us colored, slave as well as soldier, watching on. Mrs. Clapson's mouth lay wide open, lips a quiver, but no sound came forth. They're three little boys, though. Each one wailed. The general marched his mount to the barn and into it, then returned with a bullwhip over the pommel of his saddle. He rode it over to Revere. Clapson yanked at his wrists, crying to be released, all plea and no protest now. Pungo Raiders, said the general. How quaint. And with this, Revere, again obliging some unspoken command, lit the air with that leather hide. Once. And again. Corporal Fields was then aside me, and I'd not heard him come up. Damn, Richard, he said. Damn. It was neither pity nor pleasure in his voice, just blunt astonishment. For who among us could have imagined this? The bottom rail on top. A nigger flogging a legal white man. The general bid Revere to stop just four lashes along. Clapson's head slumped low, his lips whimpering curses. The general pre prepared to address us troopers gathered around, or so we initially thought. In fact, he was speaking at them others. Ladies, said he, his voice musical with sympathetic timber, I won't ask that you disclose this man's blasphemies against your virtues. Instead, I present the chance to settle old scores. And I'll stop there. Yeah, that was a good. <laughs> I remember what happened next. So that was good. Um, thanks for that. Uh, you, you know, you you used, um, of course, it was as part of the times, and this is historical fiction. You used the N word uh, throughout uh, this uh, text, and there was one scene that I thought was interesting. Um, you have a scene where the black men in the brigade are using that word among themselves, and a white man, I think, he's an officer was uh, confused by it. Uh, and even today that issue comes up where, you know, it's wrong for the oppressors, the whites, to use the derogatory term, but sometimes the oppressed, the black man may choose to use it, uh, sort of own it or whatever, even though that can still be controversial. And I just want to, I'm curious uh, why you dealt with that and whether that issue still percolates today. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so, as you started by saying, you know, sort of 
appropriate to the time. I mean, right. it, it was in the time it was much more commonly used with uh, not, I don't want to say with less pushback, but with less, it was just more commonly accepted. But the other piece of it that I found really important, um, like I just remember being a, a young black kid growing up, obviously a hundred years after that. Mm -hmm. But I remember sort of part of what I wanted to capture, like these are young men. Mm -hmm. Richard Etheridge is 20. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a sergeant. He's 20. Some of these guys, I remember looking in the the, the, the sort of roles, uh, the sort of company roles of, of this unit. Some of these men are 16, 17. Some are even younger. Um, a few are a bit older. I, and I, I just remember part of what, what, what I wanted to capture was that camaraderie of young men, young black men specifically together and that playfulness, you know, the sort of playfulness when you will uh, maybe use that word in a playful way and other at other times use it also like revere with Richard. He uses words that aren't as uh, that isn't the N word, but that are even more charged when he basically calls them a lackey. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that that dynamic between these young men who are all fighting for the same cause, but each has his own backstories and, and his own issues and his own uh, 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 views of the world and how they interact together, both in these moments of, of high drama as soldiers, but also in these moments of levity when at the end of the day, they're just sitting around together and making a joke. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just didn't want to let, you know, 21st century uh, 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 um, hesitancies or even pieties uh, get in the way of sort of creating a scene or constructing a scene that I hoped would ring true. Mm, that's great. Well, it's a great book. I want to talk a little bit about writing with you and sort of where ideas come from. You, you, uh, I found this interesting. I was look, looking up your past a little bit, and you co-authored a book, uh, a work of fiction based on playing American football in France. I played football in college here in, in North Carolina, but, uh, you know, the name of your book is Away Running, and I'm just curious, American football in France? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it started as memoir. It ended up being a novel because I couldn't quite make it work. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I played, I'm from Texas. Uh, I'm actually in Austin right now. So I grew up not just playing football, but also in this very football right. culture, you know, yeah. from North Carolina. Yeah. You know, we practiced year round except for during the summer because yeah. of UIL. <laughs> and uh, I went off and I, I played uh, small college football in Minnesota. And uh, after that, you know, you, you know, it, Naively, you <laughs> hope that you have some chance to go beyond right. that, and I just didn't. And uh, I was trying to find my way. I, you know, I bought a guitar that I never learned how to play. I tried to act. <laughs> I was really not very good. Hey, I bought a and, guitar uh, too after college. So I just didn't get to play football in France. So. <laughs> well, I, when I was in this play, one of the guys I was going to play with um, in Minnesota, a former teammate who uh, uh, had been in England studying. Uh, uh, you know, drama and whatever, he'd stumble on a poster. And, you know, <laughs> I'm out in the world not knowing what to do. There was this poster. So I called the team and I was like, hey, I'm a former player. And they said, come over, we'll give you a tryout. Mm -hmm. And it started that way. I went from England to France. And in France is where I really sort of, I mean, in part because of my own uh, personal family history, I just, I latched onto these teams and I was living in Paris and it was just great. It was just a great way to spend my 20s. Yeah. And you, you co-wrote this uh, uh, novel, uh, might have a question about that. But first, uh, this idea of sort of where ideas come from. And, um, you, you know, you, you talk about the fact that uh, you sort of buy into the Hemingway idea that, uh, you know, you got to gain some experience before you become a writer. And what better way to do that than, as you say, hitchhike from Brazil to Dallas and also go over and play football in France. So did that inform your writing to do those kinds of things? A thousand percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. And it, But in part, and I have to say, part of that was the fear of that I didn't have anything to say. Mm -hmm. And I think without those sort of like adventures, quote unquote, we all have something to say just by virtue of the lies that we leave that are lead that are always complicated. But I think this apprehension that I wouldn't have something to say, or it wouldn't be interesting, made me go, okay, well, go out and live life, you know, you'll stumble on some something that, you know, might be of interest might be a good story to tell. It, you know, on a bar stool, mm -hmm. if not in the pages of a book. Yeah. So, well, my, one of my co-hosts and I are toying with the idea of doing a little uh, co-writing on a mystery, and I was wondering uh, what that experience of co-writing a novel was like. How, how you sort of managed that, and how it worked. It was, it was so it was great, and it was hard. Mm. It doesn't have the work. It does, you know, mm. you don't sort of go, right. you write half, and I'll write half. <laughs> it 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 yeah. almost doubles it really because yeah. you've got to do the work. You've got to make the voices 
combine and you have to deal with two strong personalities, you know, <laughs> but with, with Away Running, it was really important to both of us. My uh, co-author is a former teammate who's now a journalist, uh, Quebecois, he's from uh, Quebec. A lot of the players in France and England, they were mostly American. In France, there were a lot of uh, uh, Canadians, particularly French Canadians. And we had such different experiences, you know, as a, this white Quebecer in France and me as this black you know, man in France, I was the guy who'd get stopped by the police and this and that, you know, just randomly. And so part of what we wanted to get at was sort of use the story of these young men who are off on this adventure, but when they encounter Paris, it isn't the Paris of Hemingway. It isn't, I love a movable feast. Mm -hmm. It's not a movable feast, right? Mm -hmm. It's the Paris of those suburbs. And we, it just so happened that um, the team that we, the primary team that we played for, I, that I played for, where he and I met, I played for a few teams there, was situated in one of those suburbs that during 2005, when the riots happened, mm -hmm. the very famous riots mm -hmm. happened in Paris, it was one of the suburbs that blew up. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to use that. It's like the, the away running is the story of the, the side of Paris that you don't see, right? Mm -hmm. Of, you know, sort of, of racism. It isn't the sort of a glorified Paris. So these characters are sort of living in Hemingway, Paris, but then going up to this suburb and experience a whole different world. And it seemed important to say it from the point of view of the black character and the point of view of the white character to give them both pride of place. Mm. All right, a couple of uh, questions related to MFA. You're a teacher in the MFA program, I believe, at the University of Illinois, and uh, so you're always talking to students about writing. Um, writing's one thing, the publishing world is another. How do you help your students understand uh, the reality of publishing? You know, it's the hardest part. It's the hardest part. You know, the students tend to want to, um, you know, they're, they're younger and younger, I notice too, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but they're closer to their undergrad. And so in a way they think I'm going into an MFA program and I'm going to learn to be a writer and I'm going to come out the other end and I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> and they're stronger writers <laughs> But that's not necessarily all it takes. Well, obviously not to, to what it takes to be a writer. You've got to get the book out there in the world. And the business part is the hardest part, mm -hmm. if you ask me in some ways. So I, in my own practice as a teacher, and, and, and a little bit differently from some of my colleagues, but I really, I try to emphasize the business part of it too, like being mm -hmm. this awareness of, of audience. It isn't for everybody. And I, I'm a, I try to be aware of what those students who are, you know, they're very happy to sort of have their work out there in smaller magazines and things mm -hmm. like that, which is great. But the students who, most of the students sort of imagine this book that's coming out with Knopf or <laughs> Simon and Schuster and wins the Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. And so we have to think about the work in that way too, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I try to have them be aware of audience in that way, sort of nurture, foster their voice, but always with an eye towards, and then what? Yeah, that's great. All right, one final question. If you could tell your younger writer self something of value that had your younger writer known it, uh, based on all the experience you now have, what would you tell yourself? Patience. Mm. Patience. I'm 58 now. I went to France, and that's when I first started writing at 22. From the beginning, there were little things I, I could sense that there was, that there was something there, that I, I had a ear for dialogue, things like that. I eventually got into an MFA program, and I thought, oh, this is, this is a marker of something. And it still took... 10 years past the MFA to write a book that wasn't even fiction. You know, we yeah. stumbled on the P Island story and wrote it as nonfiction because it needed to be written that way. It just patience, patience and stick to it. I had the stick to itiveness, but the patience, I just didn't, you just don't know. And you won't find out unless you put yourself out there. Yeah. I've interviewed a number of uh, New York times bestselling authors and at least one of them told me he was an overnight success. It just took 12 years to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, all, took me 35 yeah, all, and i'm not yet an overnight success <laughs> right, i get that i get that well david it's been uh, a real pleasure to have you on the podcast uh want to wish it you it was great to talk yeah. with you landis thank you we have a newsletter called beyond 300 and we'd love to have you sign up this is where we share what's coming on the podcast provide helpful links and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts you can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. All right, here we are in uh, Act 2, um, the writing portion of our show. Uh, we've got a two-minute tip from Charlotte. Uh, Pariali is here again, uh, and he's bringing a tip titled Becoming a Better Writer. So let's listen in. Hi, I'm Paul Rielli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit, 
with a two-minute writing tip for Charlotte Readers Podcast. As the two-minute tip series comes to an end, I'd like to offer two more that collect some of the most important things I've learned as a writer and in working with other writers. Today, I offer a list. You will become a better writer if you do these things. One, read a lot in many different forms and styles, but especially in the form and genre you aspire to write. Two, write a lot, more than you probably do now. It doesn't take a lot of time to write a lot, which I know sounds ridiculous on its surface, but consider this. Did you write for 180 hours last year? Think of how much work you could produce, all of which goes into making you a better writer in just 30 minutes a day. Three, let go of the idea that every word that emerges from your fingers must be golden, magical, a gift from the gods. That's what rewriting and editing are for. I believe that this, more than any other bit of resistance, is what holds most writers back. Four, get some help. Here are three ways. One, take classes. Might I modestly recommend you check out charlottelit.org? Two, read books on the craft. There are many great ones. Three, find feedback partners where you can learn to give and receive constructive feedback. That's four steps to becoming a better writer. Read a lot, write a lot, don't expect magic, and do find some help. There's one more suggestion to go with these. Give it one year. Commit to one year with a sole purpose, becoming a better writer. For one year, don't worry about submitting or publishing, just about improving. You will, of course, continue to learn and grow and improve after that year, but one year devoted entirely to learning and improving will reward you for the rest of your writing life. For more two-minute tips from Charlotte Litt, listen to beyond 300 episodes of this podcast or visit charlottelitt.org slash tips. That's great, Paul. As I look at uh, my co-host here and my new extra co-host, Gwen, looks like Gwen wants to add something to the conversation here. <laughs> Gwen definitely is going to become a better writer now. <laughs> Thanks yeah. to this, these tips, Paul. <laughs> she's the eight-month-old eight prodigy, right? Yeah, in a year, she's going to take this year. That's her goal. She's going to be like, that's, I'm going to be yeah. a better writer next year. Better, better you know? and, and what's Gwen reading right she's now? She's starting what early. Is, Gwen is reading a book called Yoko by Rosemary Wells. Um, okay. You probably know Rosemary Wells stuff. She's like one of the classic children's book authors, but she's like loving it it's about uh like little kids lunch times and eating sushi as a little kid and it's just so cute <laughs> all right paul i bet you didn't think we'd jump right into that yeah, right the, yeah. Uh, but i have to say that uh i, I don't know paul's really nailed it here uh, what do you think sarah yeah yeah I and mean, i think it's that's kind of like a, a big promise to say like here are four things and if you do these you'll right. become a better writer but it's true <laughs> like i think those are all things that if you do them you will for sure improve. Um, and I think one that really stuck out to me was the idea of don't expect magic, like let go of that need to be, be perfect in the first draft. I think for me that that holds me back a lot because I'm always like, oh, but it's the idea, like there's something there, but it's not good enough yet. And I don't have it figured out and I know it's not going to be great. And then I just put off actually writing it. And at some point you just have to actually like get something on the paper. So yeah, these are these are all great tips, I think. Well, I know that, um, you know, by over the three years that I was, working on uh, my novel daily decorations and I was reading all these books. I mean, you know, two or three hundred interviews. I know it had to have an impression on me, uh, whether I knew it or not, just reading, uh, in different genres and also reading in the genre that I was going to write in. And then, you know, writing a lot to, even though at times I wasn't working on the novel, I was writing shorter pieces. I know you do this as well. Um, both of you do, um, between longer pieces and this idea of, you know, not getting attached to your words, being God-given, um, and don't expect magic. But here's an encouraging word, I think, and that is magic will happen. Okay? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it does. I mean, if you if you sit there long enough and if you write uh, long enough, uh, some magical things are going to happen. You're not going to know how it happened, but it will happen. And that's really uh, part of the fun. And, you know, Paul's right. Uh, consider classes, consider Charlotte, Lit, uh, Charlotte Writers Club. Hey, you might even consider, 
I'll, I'll do what Paul did, uh, modestly speaking, listening to a podcast, you know, that talks mm-hmm. about uh, writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Y'all got any suggestions for that? I don't know. Is it, um, <laughs> Not really. Yeah. There's some yeah. good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Give you a list. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, that's great stuff. Uh, read a lot uh, in your genre uh, and outside your genre. Write a lot. Um, don't uh, get too attached to your words during that year you're committing to it. And, uh, you know, get help. I enjoy reading craft books. I don't know about y'all, but uh, whether it's it's on the craft of, you know, marketing or the craft of writing, it just always seems that every time I read something, I go, oh, yeah, that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I feel like Anne Lamott has a lot of books like that where she kind of writes. It's it's like her, her craft books, like Bird by Bird. It's like very, this is how you become a better writer. This is how you get in the creative zone and stuff like that. But it also feels very kind of whimsical and like novelistic, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you mm-hmm. sort of feel that magic come through. And it's just inspiring when you're kind of hearing from, from another writer who struggles with the same things as you do. But you kind of see that they were able to pull out of it. So, you know, why can't you? Yeah. Yeah, another shameless plug, even like in our quote books, uh, there's so many quotes like that, where it's like, you see these amazing, talented, best-selling writers, and they've had some of the same struggles. So yeah, the the magic is there, but sometimes you just have to keep keep pushing for it to come out. Keep pushing, keep pushing. There you go. All right. Well, that's that's great, Paul. Thanks for that. Uh, Hey, we'll be right back uh, in just a second with our community blog post for today. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out. And in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, uh, we got a community blog post. Uh, Pernell Hughes, author of 10 years. Uh, her blog post is Random Nuggets for Writerly Wrangling. Sarah, you want to tell us uh, about our blogger today? Yeah, so um, before moving to writing full-time, she studied film and literature at university. Then after graduating, she went to advertising, then to marketing natural history films before working in children's television, which she says meant living in actual Teletubby land Mm -hmm. for a while. (laughs) Um, From 2011 to 15, she regularly contributed to the Sunday Times column Confessions of a Tourist. Uh, She's had three novels published, 10 years Probably the best kiss in the world and punch drunk love, which was previously sweatpants at Tiffany's. <laughs> she lives in Buckinghamshire, England, and while the kids are at school, she scoffs cake and writes stories to ma- write stories to maintain a shred of sanity. I love her. I want to hang out with you, Pernell. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> love that. And I love how in the UK they they refer to it as university. You know, we mm-hmm. we refer to it as going to college, even if it is a university. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, all right, well, this, this is great. Uh, let's listen in uh, to Random Nuggets for Writerly Wranglings. Pamela Hughes, Random Nuggets for Writerly Wranglings. I'm still a newer author with much to learn, but I've picked up a few things in the last four years and three books. Random Nuggets for Writers, wherever they're at in their Writerly Wranglings. Let me share. For the newbie writer... It's great to have a fantastic scenario for your story, but your characters are key. They need to feel real and rounded to your readers. They need to be flawed. Even the goodies, not just the baddies. My tip, one, get a big glass of wine. Two, shut yourself away from people with said glass of wine, a pad and a pen. Three, take a long, hard look at yourself and write down all your flaws on the pad. Be merciless. No one else needs ever see this list. Four, drink the big glass of wine. (laughs) You now have a list of flaws. If it isn't a list, then you haven't been merciless enough, or you're a saint, or deluded, or both. A list you can mine for your characters and dig really deeply into when you write, because you have an understanding of those flaws and what they feel like and possibly why they exist. This is writing what you know. For the editing writer... If you think it might need cutting, it probably does. I can't remember why I read this, but it is annoyingly true. For the promo shy writer, start early in trying to build your platform and do this by connecting with other readers like yourself. Essentially, find your tribe. 
No matter how niche your reading tastes, there will be others like you to be found on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok. You just need to use the hashtags and look. Join the conversation. Let them get to know you over something you all love. No selling. Same for your writing. Find your readers. Connect with them. Again, no selling. Just engaging and listening. And one day, when you and your debut are ready, your social media friends will be there to beta read for you, review for you, cheer for you, and perhaps even buy your book. For the querying writer, rejection chocolates. This is a vital part of your submission prep. One, buy a really good box of chocolates, something fancy you wouldn't normally buy. Two, hide them from yourself and any family members who like to share your stuff. Three, if you get a rejection, you may eat one. One. Four. When you get an offer of representation, you may scuff what's left. The rejection will still be sad, but the chocolates take the sting off. For the doubting writer. This should really be bolted into the submission process. Your inner critic is a bitch and imposter syndrome is real. Make a new document, title it Vainglory File and bury it deep in your folders where no one else will stumble across it. Any time a rejection letter says something nice, copy that line into your file. Add any other compliments you might get about your writing from anywhere. Have a little read of it whenever you are feeling low about this crazy business. Sometimes you just need a little pet talk or a pat on the back. For the newly signed writer, celebrate. This game can be slow and lonely and hard, so make the most of every single good moment and find some way, however small, of partying for it. Celebrate getting your deal, signing your contract, sending in your edits, the cover reveal. Top tip, have it made into a phone case so you always have an image easily to hand. Have it made into a canvas, your walls need it. Celebrate publication day, have that launch party, do it. Don't be bashful. This is a rare thing. Your friends will want to celebrate you. Accept it and bask in it. Celebrate your box of proofs arriving. Film that unboxing and snipping the pages. It's all good social media content. Celebrate your bestseller flag on Amazon, even if it only lasts 24 hours in the most obscure category. Celebrate it all. Life is short and hard enough. Take the moments of glory whenever and wherever you can. And for the established writer, Help a newbie writer. Someone will have helped you at some point or else you wish that someone had. So befriend a beginner, make an introduction, pass on some advice, give a quote, whatever you can, and hopefully they'll pass it on when it's their time. All right. Uh, gosh, that uh, writer wranglings has a lot of good information yeah. in there. Uh, so what jumped out at y'all? The chocolate? <laughs> I want chocolate <laughs> <For> now. <sure. laughs> It's never this too. Time. It's never. Too, we're recording early this morning. It's never too early for chocolate. No, is it? no. yeah, that's true. Sounds great <laughs> with coffee, to be honest. Uh, no, I love the attitude here. Very upbeat. Uh, what are your thoughts, mm-hmm. Sarah? Yeah, and there's so much good stuff in here. I think. Yeah, you're right. That that general attitude of being upbeat and just celebrating the good parts of writing. I think sometimes it's easy to get mired down in the rejections and oh, the hard parts and all of that. But yeah, like there there are little victories along the way. Even if it's just someone gives you a nice compliment or you get notes and maybe there's some constructive criticism in there, but there are some good things too. Like remember those and celebrate those and enjoy those because otherwise why are we doing all this right if we don't get to enjoy the good parts um yeah and chocolate helps too when it's not as good (laughs) yeah and she starts out uh with the great point that many of our authors have uh, talked about in the right quote series which is how important characters are uh, to the story uh, sometimes more important than the story itself uh, because oftentimes people may forget the story but they'll remember the characters and uh Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting the way she was going to, you know, a lot of authors when they're asked, uh, well, is there something about you and these characters, you know, they immediately think about their protagonist, their hero, but oftentimes there can be part of the author in the uh, evildoer (laughs) as well, or in the flaws in the main character. And I hadn't really thought about this approach, but uh, there would be a number of things I could write down that I could work into some of my characters that wouldn't be flattering necessarily. And then when people ask you, oh, shucks, no, there's nothing about me <laughs> in this ma- manuscript. Uh, but uh, I think Kimry Martin said on the podcast, she's uh, 
been successful as a writer here from Charlotte, and she uh, is quoted in the book, I think, about how when, when people ask her if she's, you know, if this autobiographical thing, she says, well, not necessarily, but uh, just in case, don't pay attention to chapters 9, 11, and 12. If you're my, my mm-hmm. mother, please don't look at chapter, you know, 21, you know. <laughs> so, so it is probably possible to uh, mine some of your own flaws to uh, flesh out your character's uh, a little bit, and then um, you know this idea about uh, you know, sort of overcoming rejection is interesting. But I think this uh, uh, the idea of uh, uh, you know paying it forward. Thoughts on that, Hannah? Because you work with a lot of authors, um, and you've seen this firsthand. I think about how these authors, when they're promoting themselves, are also helping to promote other authors as well. Yeah, I mean, I think community is pretty much the name of the game. Um, You know, you want to make the connections, you want to learn from each other, and if you kind of value those relationships along the way, that really takes a lot of work out of the marketing process, I think. Like she said in the post, you know, if if you've been doing that, then you'll have a bunch of social media friends to, like, celebrate the launch of your next book with you, and maybe they'll even buy it, you know? It's kind of putting in that work to, like, make those connections and contacts and enjoying it, because I think that for a lot of writers, and, and she also made a point about, like, celebrating the launch of the book, and a lot of writers are bashful about that. Um, that is something that I see all the time. So, like even being afraid to make connections or friends in the writing world because you just want to write all day or not celebrating the launch of your book because you don't really want to get all the attention or stuff like that. It's just sort of like, I don't know, it's, it's so worth it. And you find so much joy when you do that, I think, because you're able to like enjoy the ride with other people versus just kind of by yourself. Um, and it really is half of it, you know, it's just like kind of getting your face and your personality and your work out there. And it all kind of seems to follow after that. One other thing that I love that she said too, is that she was like, it's a rare thing that you publish your book. Like, I think for a lot of writers, they think, oh, well, there's a million books out there. There's like, I'm not doing anything special. Yeah. There's like a freak ton of people in the world you know there's so many people out there it's it is actually a rare thing when you think about it that you're able to sit down and put together a book and have it published and out in the world so I think maybe keeping that in mind too is just a really positive again the positivity is just awesome that she has in here but I think that's kind of an interesting point that she makes yeah, very interesting any exclamation points you want to add to this Sarah Yeah, well, I guess I'll just add on to that. I think that that is a great point because a lot of writers, at least speaking for myself, so many of the people I know are writers. We tend to like move in in writer circles or people who are in the publishing world or stuff like that. So yeah, it it seems to me like, oh, everyone has a book. Everyone's publishing stuff. (laughs) Everyone's writing. But yeah, I guess in the scheme of things, it is a rare thing. So that's a good thing to to remember and to celebrate. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be right back. We're going to come back with our book recommendations and uh, what's coming uh, next on the podcast. You can subscribe to Charlotte Readers Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, uh, here we are um, with our book recommendation section of the show. And uh, Hannah, I'm going to go to you first, uh, or Gwen, whoever's going to be making the recommendation this week. She just uh, slapped the desk, so I guess it's her. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this one does kind of like, I don't know, it speaks to the YA audience. Um, this My recommendation this week is kind of a preface to an interview that's coming up in the next few weeks with Jarrett Kershawska. Um, it is called Hey Kiddo, which is a graphic memoir. It is uh, such a great book. I, you know, I think graphic memoirs are such an interesting thing. You don't really think about a whole lot when you think of a memoir. You're kind of normally thinking, all right, well, it's probably a longer book about your life experience, da, 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 but it's, which is also great <laughs> most of the time. But this is really interesting because he does all of the uh, graphics, all the artwork for it, um, for all of his books. And he kind of tells his story growing up, which is actually really dark. Um, it's, you know, his parents were, he lived with his grandparents. His parents were drug addicts. Um, he dealt with a lot of really hard things just throughout the course of growing up with parents like that. And 
being very lonely and kind of having to find a new home somewhere else. And, um, but he tells it super beautifully, just like with, it's almost again, kind of like poetry in a way where you're seeing these little snippets of words, but the artwork is just fantastic. Um, and you can read it pretty quickly. It's, it's uh, a book that you can sort of fly through just because you're just kind of wanting to see what the next picture is, to be honest, and just kind of uh, what happens next. It's great. And um, it is the first book in, in his kind of memoir series. The next one is called Sunshine, which I talked to him about in a couple of weeks. Um, but it's just really great. And I think it's a book that speaks to a YA audience, but also an adult audience. I told him that um, my friend actually gave it to me he said he was just like this really when we were in our late 20s he was like this really was such an awesome book um it just kind of hit the nail on the head in a lot of different places for me and he bought copies for like our entire friend group so it, it's just like one of those really great stories that kind of it's dark but it's also beautiful and uplifting and so i i really enjoyed it a lot that sounds that sounds great uh, yeah we do have him coming up in a few episodes uh what you got uh, sarah yeah, that one sounds so good. I'm, I'm looking forward to the interview. Um, but I have been reading or listening to you on Libro.fm, The God of Good Looks by Brienne McIver. Um, honestly, I've actually been enjoying it more than I expected to. <laughs> it's set in Trinidad. And so I was initially intrigued by the Caribbean setting. I, I lived in the Caribbean briefly a couple of years ago. So I thought that part would be fun. Um, and it is interesting to read about that setting. But it's also just a really well-written book. It's um, it's about this woman who, when the, the book starts, she's working as a model, but then she starts working as an editor at a fashion magazine. And one of the main characters is a makeup artist. So it has like some of that kind of light, fun, beauty world stuff. And there's some romance elements, but there's also some darker, more serious um, elements to the character stories. And it gets a lot into kind of the social and political situation in Trinidad and the crime rate um, and some of the kind of ethical issues in the beauty industry. And it, she blends all of those different components together really well, I think, and balances the tone really well. Um, the writing is great. So it's it's fun, but it's also kind of got some meat to it and some interesting issues that she's exploring. And yeah, it's, it's a really good read, The God of Good Looks. That sounds good. Um, yeah, we've been Enjoying listening to books on Libro, and I've got a few I'm going to be listening to this summer as well uh, through them. Uh, I've got a book here um, I thought about uh, to recommend, Summertime, interesting. We had water. We're talking about water and beaches and stuff. Well, this is Billy Budd's Sailor by Herman Melville. It's a, it's a classic uh, novella. It was uh, the last work that he did uh, that was uh, discovered among his papers after his death it, it's very interesting. I studied it uh, in, in a law school seminar uh, once, uh, and the novel involves this uh, fellow on this uh, ship, a Navy sailor, Billy Budd. He's accused of mutiny by a fellow officer, um, and, and, and the circumstances of what happened are uh, not necessarily in dispute, but it was accidental, but because of the code of the, the Navy at that time, uh, the result uh, and the punishment was quick, and he was hanged. But it's sort of a, um, they call it, uh, some have called it the best short novel ever written. Um, and it's it's a parable. It includes, uh, you know, the good versus evil. I mean, he, he is the best of sailors on this ship who accidentally uh, kills somebody and uh, ends up uh, being put to death. That's not a very happy thing, is it? I'm suggesting that people <laughs> read here today. Sounds good. There's a, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot packed into this uh, short read, and I would I would commend it to you. I'll just leave it at that. I think I've. Uh, <laughs> I don't want so positive. To I remember <laughs> reading this in high school. It's, you, you I remember mean, this? It, it was a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it is a, a classic. It, it definitely <laughs> leads to some conversation, right, about uh, mm. the, the justice system and that kind of thing. All right. Well, maybe Mark uh, West has a little happier, <laughs> happier recommendation here. Hello. This is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte blog. My book recommendation today is Can't Hide Love by Cheris Hodges. Cheris is one of Charlotte's leading romance writers. She's also a journalist who works here in Charlotte. This book is part of a series. It's book four of the Richardson Sisters series. All of the books in the series deal with the Richardson family's historic bed and breakfast located in Charleston, South Carolina. Each book in the series features one of the Richardson sisters, and this latest volume focuses on Alexandria Richardson. Alexandria 
finds herself involved with an architect who has been hired to redesign the family bed and breakfast. This is a perfect book for those of us who think about going to Charleston for summer vacation. I highly recommend this entertaining novel. Thank you. Well, I saw that when he recommended going to Charleston for vacation, I saw Gwen clapping her hands. Yeah, just, she's this, pretty excited this, about this. Gwen <laughs> likes being in Charleston for, you know. But Gwen, you're moving to Cincinnati. I know. Yeah. She's what? just like, what the heck? Yeah. I'm not going. Yeah. Now she's going to try to eat my uh, headphone cord. <laughs> yeah. If, if we have a short out here, folks, and the line goes dead, it's because Gwen has uh, Hannah's earpiece in her mouth. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's connected she's in. Now, don't bite down on that. Keeping Gwen. things interesting for me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, that's uh, some some great book recommendations. I uh, hope uh, you'll find one of those that you enjoy or more maybe. And uh, uh, hey, it's now time. Uh, we've come to the end of another episode. Uh, thanks for hanging with us as long as you did. Uh, we uh, appreciate that. And uh, Sarah, can you tell our listeners what's coming next? Sure. Uh, next time we have um, award-winning writer David Fleming in his book titled Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest to Uncover the First True Declaration of Independence, called by Andrew Roberts, a renowned historian and New York Times bestselling author, a hugely entertaining page-turner, where Fleming proves beyond a reasonable doubt that Thomas Jefferson plagiarized the Declaration of Independence and then sought to cover it up. Mm, I think um, that's, uh, I've heard about that. You know, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're the perfect person to do that yeah. interview, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, we're also going to have a feature with Paul Leekhart, author of several short story collections in his blog post called For the Love of It All, Be Specific, Just Don't Specify Everything. And then we're going to have a thought-provoking Charlotte two-minute tip, elevator pitches, and book recommendations. All right. Uh, well, Gwen and Hannah, you want to take us out <laughs> here? All right, Gwen, you ready? Everybody, read on, write on, and rock on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 